0: This morning, if you would, for the sermon, turn to Isaiah 6, and we'll read Isaiah 6, 1 through 8. Verse 1. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with a train of His robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above Him, each having six wings. With two, He covered His face, and with two, He covered His feet, and with two, He flew. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me the word of the Lord. Um, We've been working through discipling our children, and this is actually part of it. What are we to teach our children about God? And I want you to understand this is part of that series. As we think about who God is and what he is like. But as we look at this passage today, I want to ask a question as we move through this. What happens when God comes to church? What happens when God comes to church? Many of us know a great deal about church. Uh, Many of us know exactly what's going to happen. We have, and I don't know if I have it with me, here it is. We have our order of service right here. And many of us know exactly the order of service. We know exactly how this is supposed to go. (laughs) We know how Pastor Wheat has... Put the order of service together. Now, I'm, I get a lot of help. I'm not just doing this on my own. I'm using the church of all ages to help me out. But we know that announcements are made. And we know that there's going to be a prayer upon entering the sanctuary. And we know about prayers. And we know about confession and confessing our faith. And we know how this goes. We come and we know this. We know business as usual. We've been, maybe many of us know about personal Bible study. Many of us know about personal prayer. Many of us can, can uh, say, you know what, I know how to talk about prayer. And we have that great little, uh, you know, A-C-T-S act. You know, we adore and we confess our sins. We think we're thankful and we make supplication. We know how to teach people how to pray. We, we got it down. And we know these things. But here's the question. Have you ever thought about, you come to church, you know these things, you know many things about God, but when you leave church, have you ever wondered why things just continue as they always have, business as usual? Business as usual. Business as usual. I came to church, I go home, I still sin the same old sins, I still think the same old ways. I can teach you how to pray, but I still sin. I don't really like praying, but I do pray sometimes. I read my Bible, but I'm still unchanged. Well, there's people that do that. They come to church and they know a lot of things. But then there's other people. And I met men like this. I met men in other churches. And these men would come to church and I would see them with their wives. And they would look down during the service. They might talk to me at the end of the service. They might say, hey, Pastor Wheat. They might have manners at the end of the service. But uh, you find out that these men are only coming to church because they want to keep everything peaceful, all quiet on the western front at home, right? They want to keep everything peaceful, and they told their wife before they got married that they would go to church. That was their promise, and so they come. They don't listen to the sermon. They don't put their heads down when people pray. They don't sing. They don't sing. You want to talk about the minister in the front seeing people? I promise you, guys, the minister sees your faces. I'm sitting there looking at these men. They don't sing when it's time to sing. They don't listen when it's time to listen. They can't wait to get up. They may be on their phone. There's two kinds of folks many times who come to church. And we wonder why nothing changes. They know a lot of stuff. These guys can, can talk doctrine. These guys can t- talk about confessing sins. They can teach. They can do all this stuff. And these guys over here, they don't give a care at all. They're just ready to, for the door to open up so they can leave. But there's things that they have in common. Both of them come to church and both of them leave. Business as usual, Unchanged. Why is that? What happens when God comes to church? What happens when the person who knows a whole lot about God and the person who doesn't know much about God and doesn't want to know God, what happens when God begins to press in on these folks? What happens when the cloud of God's glory starts pressing into the building? What happens? We come to church and so we we don't know what it means to experience God's presence. And so then all of a sudden God shows up. In this text, we see that the robe of God is filling into the temple and pressing in on people's hearts. Pressing in on angels. Buildings are shaking. What happens when God comes to church? Well, when God comes to church, you will never do business as usual ever again. In fact, you will never do your family the same way again. You will never do your business at work ever again. You will never make pies the same way again. You will never, ever be a mom at home with three little people again. You will be different in every part of your life if you experience what we talk about in this passage today. And so we come to Isaiah chapter six. And when we come to Isaiah six, we see a man who is coming to church. <laughs> He's coming to church. This is not the first time Isaiah's come to church, to the temple. But we see in this chapter basically a glimpse of all the book of Isaiah. If you want to understand Isaiah, it's right here in these first eight verses. The chapter is about curse and doom. Do you see that man on his face? He's struck down in the presence of God. It's about curse and doom. Well, the first person who's cursed and doomed is Uzziah. Do you see that first part of the verse there? In the year... That King Uzziah, of King Uzziah's death, Uzziah has been on the throne, folks. Uzziah was mightily, if you go read the story about Uzziah, you'll see in Chronicles, he was greatly helped. God was on his side and he was greatly helped until he became so powerful and so strong. Guess who became intoxicated with? Not God himself. He became so proud that he thought, well, hey, listen, I'm so good. Everything's going my way so good. I'll just decide that I'm going to go in and I'm going to offer incense where the priest would do. I'll go and invade that area. And the priests were stopping him. And while the priests were stopping him, God smote him with leprosy on his head. He left the temple. He left his palace. He left and he stayed estranged from God the rest of his life, doing business as usual, separated from God he was cursed and he was doomed the people the people of of god are cursed and doomed in this passage the the king the king's lead the people are following his lead they continue to do business as usual they continue to disobey god and a little history lesson here. The northern tribes, the ten tribes in the north, Israel, they're called Israel. They are taken into captivity by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. In the southern kingdom, Judah is taken into captivity through Babylonia, the Babylonian superman, Nebuchadnezzar, in 586. He destroys the walls of the temple. Everything is annihilated. The people are under this great curse and they're doomed. It seems like this is the final word. But if you go down and look in verse 13, it says curse and doom is not the final word. It says that the king is being cut down like a tree. He's cut down. He's gone. But there's the stump that remains. And that stump, verse 13 says, is the holy seed through which Messiah comes. The holy seed will come forth. The promised Messiah will come forth and God's people are to look forward. To that promise coming about. So we have curse and doom. The king cursed and doomed. The people cursed and doomed. And we see the prophet is cursed and doomed. We see him struck down. He's on his face. But you know, at the end of this passage, he wasn't on his face. At the end of this passage, we see a man who is broken. He's pronouncing a woe upon himself. He's pronouncing a curse on himself. He's confessing his sins and we find him being concerned about, this is your outline, he's concerned about other people and he goes out and he serves God. God raised him up from being struck down. He doesn't leave the service this day, business as usual. The prophet Isaiah was from a very influential home. He was aristocratic, He was well-educated. He was a friend of the king. He had friends in high places. He had an opinion of himself. He thought of himself so much better than most men, weightier in stature, powerful and strong. He failed to recognize the seriousness of his own sins, especially in his mouth. The sins of the world had crept into his mouth, and he is speaking like other worldly men speak. We've all gotten a bath, right? Now, there's a little trick about baths. Have you ever known? You know the trick about baths? This is, this is bath, bath technology. So, little little bath technology here. If you go and get a bath, now, how many, I, I don't know that I, we, we moved into this house we're in right now, I don't think I've gotten a bath in that big bowl bathtub of ours yet because I'm going to get a shower and get done. If you do a bath, you have to think about bath technology, Okay, now what happens, women, if we run a bath and we run it all the way to the top? We step in, our body weight displaces the water, and we got a big old mess of water on the floor we have to clean up after we enjoy our hot bath. This prophet is so intoxicated, he's so weighty, and he thinks of himself so much when he gets in the bathtub, all the water goes out, and he's the only one there. No water there for him. No God is in his mind. He is intoxicated with himself. He's thinking about himself. He's thinking about how great he is. He's so full of himself and not the weightiness of God. And what is the remedy for this person? What's the remedy for a person who's full of themselves? Well, God has to come to church. The glory of God has to enter into the temple. Now, let's think about God's glory for a second. The word glory in the Hebrew is kabod, and it speaks of the manifest presence of God. But there's two things I want you to remember. Heavy and impression. Heaviness, weightiness, and impression. Think about the fact that your density of your body goes into the tub. you weigh it. Your density is much more than water. The water is pushed out. God is heavy. And when God's heaviness comes into the room, he leaves an impression. When kings write letters, you know, or when the scarlet, if y'all ever watch the scarlet pimpernel, the scarlet pimpernel has a ring and he turns it over and he puts his symbol into the wax and he leaves his seal, he presses it down, he leaves his impression. He's weighty and he leaves an impression. And this is God's glory. When God's glory was manifest in the wilderness, there was a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. It left an impression. When the glory of God came on Mount Sinai at the giving of the Ten Commandments, do you remember there were physical phenomena? The people felt this. The earth was quaking. There were bolts of lightning. Smoke filled the air and there was fire. Moses, when he finished building the impermanent tabernacle that would travel with the people for 40 years. Do you remember? It says that the glory of the Lord filled the house, Exodus 40, such that the men couldn't do their business as usual. The same thing is said about Solomon when he built the temple. The glory of the Lord filled the temple. The men had to stop. They couldn't keep doing the normal thing. As we see our prophet, he comes to church, business as usual, He comes to church, business as usual. Then he comes to church and God is there. And he says, I, verse 1, saw the Lord sitting on his throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. That robe is pressing in on everything. That presence of God is pressing in on everything. First of all, we see when the Lord comes to church, the heavens begin to quake. Look at verse 2. Seraphim stood above him. Seraphim is an is a interesting word. It means blazing ones. It means fiery ones. We're talking about angels now. Finite creatures who are holy. And these angels, they have six wings, three pairs. And two of the wings cover their eyes. And two of the wings cover their feet. It's like they're in the presence of God's holiness and they can't look upon it. Their feet are almost as if they've been walking in mud and so they cover them. And so with two they fly, and their lungs, the pressure of God's presence is such that the pressure is pushing in on their lungs, and the air goes through their lungs, through their vocal cords, and they begin to sing. This is what happens to these folks, these beautiful, dazzling ones in God's presence. They begin to call out to each other, and they begin to sing this song, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Holy is God's nature. The Lord is His name. And the Lord of hosts speaks of His sovereign rule over all that He commands. In the Hebrew language, if you want to express intensity, you have to use repetition. If you think about that, if you read your Psalms, I was reading a Psalm the other day and I was thinking about this and I was going, hmm, this is the third time He's talked about confessing His sins. In the same song, if you want to express uh, intensity in the Hebrew language, you use repetition in English. If you want to express a superlative, you say holy oh, more than holy, holier. And then you say holiest. If you want to say something's better than good, you say good and you say better and you say best. In Hebrew, if you want to say gold is pure gold, you don't say pure gold. In Hebrew, you say gold, gold. If you want to say there's that the land of Sedim in Genesis 14 is full of pits, the Hebrew doesn't say full of pits. That's how we translate it. It says pit pits. <laughs> pit pits. How many pits? Well, it's, pity, it's pretty pity, right? We won't go into that. But when you move and you start thinking about these holy ones and you use Hebrew, they begin to have the, their lungs, the pressure upon their lungs is such that they're pushed out and they have to say, holy, holy, holy. This is a transcendent God. This is a beautiful and unapproachable God. And so we have angels who are quaking. We have the earth quaking. When the Lord comes to church, the earth begins to quake and shake. Verse 4, And the foundations of the threshold tremble at the voice of Him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. So we have the heavens are affected. We have the earth being affected. And we also have who else being affected? We have men being affected. When the Lord comes to church, the prophet he doesn't have a heart attack. He has a heart quake. Have you ever had a heart quake? Have you ever said, woe is me, I'm ruined. You know what the word ruin means? I'm disintegrating. Sometimes we say disintegrating, disintegrating. Well, think about it real slow. Disintegrating. I'm going to pieces. I'm coming apart at the seams. That's what he's saying. I'm struck down. So we have angels who are perfect, pure angels, and they sing praise. And we have this man in the presence of God, and he begins to go to pieces. When the Lord comes to church, you cannot leave and do business anymore as usual. Jesus is here today. Jesus says in Matthew 18, where two or more are gathered in my presence, that I will be with them. We can talk about God's presence Always with us. But this special presence of the Lord is with us in worship. He is here today. And when Jesus shows up today, you can't leave this place doing business as usual. Don't come to this place with eating on your mind. You can't do that anymore. you got to change that. You can't come to this place thinking about the ball game. You can't come to this place only with that meal after this service on your mind. That's business as usual. Business no longer as usual. You can't come to this place being intoxicated with all your thoughts about yourself. When the Lord's glory begins to press in on us, we begin to be—we're squeezed so that we begin to think His thoughts after Him and not our thoughts. His glory is filling not just the temple. His glory is working on my heart. His glory begins to rule and reign over me in a way I've never known before, and I'm humbled. You feel the weight of God's presence, and you realize God's glory is filling the room. I don't know um, some some of the folks some of the folks aren't here today that are from California, um, but when we moved to California into the Central Valley, we began to experience something called tule fog. T U L L Y. I think that's how you spell it. Somebody might correct me. But I call, they called it Thule Fog. And so Thule Fog is uh, dense fog. And so the first time that I experienced this, it took me three minutes to drive from my house to the church. It was, it was great. I could walk in seven. I could drive in three. And um, so I'm going down, getting in the car, and I'm backing up, and I can't even see what's behind me. can't see my hand almost in front of me. And so I drive to the stop sign, and y'all please don't laugh at me, but I'm like looking for the lights. And then after I look for the lights, I roll the windows down and I said, is anybody there? Because I can't see anything. This is this Thule fog, and I can't drive business. As usual, and when you and I come to church, and when we experience God in a way we've never had before, we can't just say, "I've checked the box off, and God, I'll see you in a hundred and sixty-seven hours." That's next Sunday. One hundred and sixty-seven hours from now, we'll be doing this again. I'll see you then. We can't, you know. There was a girl <laughs> I always loved this this young lady. I would walk in, and she'd say, "Hello, Mark." And then I'd walk out on the way out, finish my job at, as a personal trainer. And she'd say, glad you could see me. I said, what? She said, glad you could see me. We, we can't say that to God anymore. Glad you could see me today. And you can see me next week, same bat time, same bad hour. But between now and then, I'll be doing my own thing. Not that anymore. No, not that anymore. Not, I've checked the box and I'll see you in 167 hours. God begins to rule over us. God begins to be with us and work in us all the time. When the Lord comes to church, you can know you're experiencing His glory when you're humbled. The prophet was humbled. In Isaiah, we see him cursing himself. He says, woe is me. He says, I deserve to die. I don't deserve to be alive. I am not like God. In humility, he confesses his sin. I am a man of unclean lips. I'm not like the seraphim. He's seeing how small he is. He is, if you will, the water that's being poured out from, the, from, from God sitting down in the tub. All, he's the water. He's the one on the floor. He sees he's little. He sees that no, it's no longer important what how, what others say about me. It's no longer important about my my rank in society. It's what God says about me that's important. What does God say about me? He's no longer saying I didn't do anything. How many hey, young uh, mom and dad y'all hear that one a lot, don't you? I didn't do anything. I didn't do anything. Yeah, now we're saying I, I did do something. Oh, Lord, you know, um, I'm not as bad as those people. What you think about me is more important than anything else. I will not continue to do business as usual. And finally, we see in the, in the prophet that he's concerned. Notice verse 5, he says, And I, will, I live among a people of unclean lips. He's not, he's not going, I'm the man anymore. He's thinking about others for the first time. I have unclean lips and they have unclean lips and I'm part of a people of unclean lips. I'm just like the rest. And so when the Lord comes to church, let's make application. You can know you're experiencing the glory of God because you leave humbled. Are you humbled? The Lord penetrates the space. His glory begins to invade this place. And we begin to curse ourselves and say, woe is me, I am not like that. Now, have you ever had that experience in high school? Here's the thing. So in high school, many of us, when we're in high school, um, I had friends who won every track meet. Every track meet. They never lost in this district. And this person was always the person who was the one-act, the the person who was in the one-act play and always did the lead role. And this person was always the fastest, and this person was always... You know, the first seat cello person in the orchestra, and this was the first on the flute, and all the rest of it. Then you go to college, and then you find out there's a whole bunch of people just like you. And then you find out that there's a whole bunch of people way better than you, and you say, I'm not like that. What are you going to do now? Well, I mean, that would be another sermon, but I remember sitting, I remember that there were guys that lived next to me at Austin College. And they studied one day to get ready, and I studied all four weeks to get ready for the same test. And I didn't sit there and get all mad about it, but I did realize I'm not like that. And when it comes to being in the God's presence, we have to say, I'm not like that. In humility, we confess our sins. And what sin, what sin is he confessing? I'm a man of unclean lips. That hurts. Our men have been studying that in James chapter 3. This tongue of ours that can set a whole forest on fire. How many things have I said that I should never have said? How many people have I made fun of that I should never have done so? How many people's reputations have I sought to harm? With my tongue. Jesus tells me not to insult people's intelligence. Jesus tells me not to insult and call people empty-headed fool. You know, one of the reasons I stopped listening to, to a lot of talk radio is because every time I listened to them, I found myself laughing at them making fun of people. Am I supposed to make fun of people? Now, I may understand that biblically there might be a fool but these guys weren't doing it and talking about it in that way. In humility, we find ourselves concerned with others. All of a sudden, I'm no longer wrapped up with myself. I'm associating with others, and I find myself wanting to repent of my sins as well as with them. God is working on me, and I find myself concerned for others. Well, I want to put these last two pieces together as one part. When the Lord comes to church, you can know that you're experiencing His glory because you leave humbled and forgiven and ready to serve. What is the remedy for the prophet's unclean mouth? It's grace, it's forgiveness, it's purification. And so God causes one of those seraphs, one of those angels, those blazing ones, to go over to the altar where there's a coal, and he takes a coal with tongs, because think how hot a coal is. It has blood soaked all over it from the sacrifice above. He takes it and he touches it to his what? He touches his lips. Now, I don't know about you, but there's pain. That's got to be painful. Have you ever touched a, you know, the stove? Uh, yeah, uh-huh. And these are what, about the most tender part of my body that I know. There's pain in this forgiveness. And he looks at him, the, the, the angel looks at him and says, Behold, Isaiah, this has touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. Guilt is removed. And there's this burden that's lifted through the blood of the lamb from that from that altar. Immediately after the prophet is forgiven of his sins, he listens and says, he says this, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And so now we see this extraordinary experience that prophets had, people like Paul had. They would be in the presence of God and they would listen in to what's going on in heaven. (laughs) I mean, Lord, don't you know, he's right there. And he says, whom shall I send and whom will go for us? He doesn't say, Isaiah, I want to send you. Will you go for me? He doesn't say that. So he's listening into what's going on in heaven. And what does he say? Here I am. Send me. I'm ready. I'm ready. I've cursed myself. I've confessed my sins. I'm now forgiven of my sins and I'm ready to go and do business and life different. Never as usual again. Today, you've come to worship. Today, you came maybe to do business as usual. Have you gotten more than you bargained for? Has the Lord come to you in His holiness, in all of the pressure of His glory? He's not here simply to to humble us. He's not simply here to strike us down on our face and leave us down. One of the reasons that we ought to come and take this table is because sometimes we feel so struck down. You know what? He's still here serving this table to you. You, 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 Do you hear what I'm saying? Oh, I I don't know if I need to take the Lord's Supper. Look at me. Look at me. Have you confessed your sins? (laughs) Are you concerned about other people? Has Jesus' blood been applied to your lips and cleansed you of your sins? Don't leave here today. Don't leave here this morning without knowing the line that that angel says to the prophet. Behold, dear person in Good Shepherd Church, behold, this has touched, this blood-soaked coal from the cross has touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. Don't leave here today without knowing, being humbled, forgiven, ready to serve based on God's grace. Well, as we prepare to go next, next door here and eat a fellowship meal, we first are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. In a few minutes, we're going to eat and drink physical food. And those, 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 those bowls and those plates and those forks and those knives are pretty large for us to have pretty good portions of food because we need, our bodies need food. But these elements we're about to eat are pretty small, aren't they? But it's what they signify that's really big. The bread speaks of the body of Christ and the wine speaks of the blood of Jesus Christ. And when you take these elements, Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood. And when you eat this bread and when you drink these cups, you are taking hold of Jesus represented in that bread and in that wine. The, the Heidelberg Catechism puts it like this. Just as real as the bread is in front of your eyes, And just as real as the wine is in front of your eyes, so also is Jesus that real in front of your spiritual eyes. And you and I should take this bread and take this wine and drink with our spiritual mouths and be nourished in our souls. This food will nourish our bodies. This food will nourish our inner man. And that's what we're here to do. So this morning, the Apostle Paul, he tells us to examine our hearts before we eat. And last week we studied Psalm 139 and we said that the psalmist, he tells tells us something very similar. He says, you and I should be vulnerable before the Lord. He says in Psalm one thirty nine twenty three and 24, he says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. So before we eat, we need to ask ourselves. We need to examine ourselves. Ask the Lord to examine you. Confess any sin. Acknowledge His mercy. But folks, don't, don't steer away from the Lord's Supper in some unnecessary fashion. This is for people who need Christ. If you don't know what we're doing, I'm going to ask that you let the elements pass you by. I'm going to ask for you to think about the blood-soaked coal we have just talked about that, that God sends to touch our lips with the blood of Christ and cleanse us. I'm going to ask that you think about that first, and then later you can come and eat and drink with us in the future. But if you're here this morning and you've been baptized in this, in this church or one like it, if you confess your sins and confess your faith in Jesus Christ, if you have committed yourself to a church where you're a member and you're taken care of by a session of elders. I'm going to ask you to come. I'm going to ask you to eat. I'm going to ask you to drink and be nourished in your souls. So let's eat and drink. Let me pray. Our Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come and to eat and drink of the body and blood of Jesus Christ, who's spiritually present in these elements to our faith. Father, give us a spiritual mouth. Help us to remind ourselves we're here, we're doing business with you by faith. And Lord, we pray that this strength that we gain from eating and drinking would help us walk out of this place not to do business as usual any longer. Use this grace that we receive to make us stronger and ready for the weeks ahead. We pray that you'll set these elements apart from their common and sacred use. For your glory may we eat. For our good may we eat. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.